Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. Uh, the student academic experience survey's out. We'll discuss the climate on campus. The free speech bill is about to hit the report stage. We'll preview the amendments. Plus the stuff on innovation, outreach and micro-credentials. It's all coming up. It is really important to note that for um, many LGBT plus students, uh, it, we are at a very pivotal age, assuming we are talking about sort of students coming uh, at around 18 years old. It's the first time you're uh, in an environment where you potentially can be yourself Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host Jim Dickinson and here with this week's HE activities, as usual, three terrific guests. Uh, in York, Marion Hilditch is Academic Registrar at the University of Bradford. Marion, your highlight of the week, please. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say what last week's highlight was, which is that Bradford has won City of Culture 2025. Hooray! Yes, I was watching that live from a, from, from a travelogue, so that was all very exciting, wasn't it? So, what was it? Live, what, did the City erupt at that point. Absolutely, absolutely. There were absolute scenes, uh, I think, absolute is the phrase scenes. to use here. Brilliant. And in South East London, Amate Doku is a consultant with Morehouse. Amate, your highlight of the week, please. Well, um, it has to be a, a personal one, actually. We've um, got a newborn in the house now. My cousin's staying with us and delivered on um, uh, Sunday. And mum and baby are doing really well. So it's lots of excitement in our house this week. Excellent stuff. And somewhere in the southwest. David Kernahan is Wonky's associate editor. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Um, it's my wedding anniversary tomorrow. Oh, lovely, lovely. Well, um, I don't know what's the phrase that you use. For, um, congratulations and best of best of yeah, the wishes. Yeah, that'll do. Thank right. you. Right. Yes, that'll oh, do. You, so yes, we start this week with the student academic experience survey. This year's undergraduate temperature check from Happy and Advance HE is out, and it looks like students are lonely, Amate. Yeah, that's about right. As ever with these um, uh, surveys and, and these reports. Um, it's rich um, with data and, and insights. So it's definitely one to, um, you know, take some time, get yourself a cup of tea and, and really dive in. Um, some, some, some real headlines for me, um, as, you, as you said, uh, Jim, um, there was a, a new question added about loneliness and uh, it identified that nearly one in four students um, feel um all or or, or or almost feel lonely um and and that um was pretty pronounced in uh with with black students international students um and disabled students and lgb plus students um uh, recording worse than, than average scores and and just for, for context um it, you'll see in the methodology trans students are, are um analyzed uh differently um but it's um that is of quite significant concern and something for institutions to, to be really be thinking about. But there was some other stuff there. Um, what was really interesting as well is, is there is a bit of a positive, um, if, if you will, post pandemic, post COVID, uh, bounce back. 
um, we're seeing um, the, the scores, particularly around value for money, uh, come back up. That's, I would imagine, really strongly linked to the return to to, to far more um, uh, face-to-face um, uh, engagement. So that's 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 really really positive. Um, and also some some really interesting things there as well around um, the inclusivity of the curriculum. So a lot of students um, uh, saying that um, they, they felt the um, curriculum was diverse and inclusive, but this did drop um, for, for certain uh, demographics of students. So there's quite a clear discrepancy between 73% of white students feeling that that's the case, but only 56% of black students seeing that's the case. And that's something that um, has been picked up time and time again in, in other reports too. So lots there to to. To, to think about and, and for institutions to really reflect on. Marion, uh, uh, obviously, uh, as Amatay says, there's lots in here to uh, have a look at. What's what, what stood out for you? So I found this both reassuring and very frustrating. Uh, so it is reassuring to see that we are we are out of the pandemic. Um, we are getting back to normal. Um, I think I can't understate how uh, important that is to say uh, that we've actually made it to the other side. Uh, very frustrating because we are back to normal. Um, and it, it's almost as if nothing happened. We didn't learn anything. We didn't change anything. We're just exactly where we were before, very nearly exactly where we were before. And that is just disappointing. Um, I wish we had done more uh, to find ourselves in a different position, not exactly the position where where we left off. Uh, So, yes, there is a lot to look at here uh, and a lot to unpick, Um, certainly uh, a lot to look at around the experience of uh, LGB plus students um, and trans students especially. Um, there's clearly a lot more we could be doing for black students. Uh, I think there's uh, exactly like Amate said, there's a lot to move over here and think about what's going on. Uh, but for me, the, the, what I took out of this was, uh, we, we haven't learned anything. Um, I think we need to think about that. Perhaps I'm being a little bit harsh on the sector here because we were still at the tail end of the pandemic this year. We weren't quite out of the woods and as the Scottish uh, results uh, show, they they were definitely not out to the woods at all. Um, So uh, we haven't had the time uh, to actually learn and improve. Uh, But I would question... Um, why, despite the fact that we have made a lot of changes, uh, certainly to the way that we teach, the way that we assess, and the support that we've put in place for students, particularly around mental health all this time, why the results are exactly where they were? That is that is a really good question, isn't it, DK? Because if it's the case that sort of, you know, um, uh, season of Dallas style, we've just kind of um, woken up from this kind of surreal dream we had, which was COVID and gone right back to where we were what does strike me when you get to the recommendations section of the report is that then you know I mean, with all the will in the world you know you know it's a great report i don't want to have, have a popper happy and advance each year but but the recommendations feel quite thin in terms of creativity and problem solving for what are now seven or eight year long deep puzzles and problems you know is it is it just that we haven't got the money or the time to to, to solve them or is something else going on uh, it's difficult to say with i mean as always we are looking at a survey instrument i'm just going to warn listeners that i'm shortly going to get into methodology so if you're affected by that um i would urge you to fast forward about three minutes 
Um, so in terms of the recommendations, I think this is one of the first times that they've done detailed recommendations linked to this survey. It did used to be just an instrument with ten, taking the temperature. The one I want to focus on in particular is about the value for money question. Now, this one gets trotted out in Parliament a lot in ministerial statements about students experiencing value for money and if they're not then that is somehow a down on the sector. Um, now, there is a thing in survey design called cognitive testing. What you do in cognitive testing is you test out your questions and you figure out if students or anybody else you're studying are understanding the questions in the way that they intend them to. Now, I mean, value for money is a big, a big issue. It's entirely possible to say you don't think you're getting value for money because you're not getting enough face to face teaching or the teaching you're getting is not of the quality that you expected, which is entirely fair enough, although it does beg a couple of questions about um, expectations and if you think you were going to get the same teaching as you got at sixth form or school. Uh, but the, as always, every year, the big issues that impact on students' perceptions of value for money are tuition fees, which most students don't actually pay themselves. Um, and it's just the perception of a sticker price <laughs> and uh, the cost of living and um, maintenance. Now, I suspect next year the, the value for money scores for universities will go down. This is not anything that universities are going to do. It's because money is going to get tighter for everybody, as we've documented in the site. And uh, it's going to feel like the cost of living is higher and thus you're getting worse value for money. So if Nick is listening here, I would really love him to properly cognitively test this question and maybe separate <laughs> out actual um, cost issues from impression of quality. But, but I mean, I mean, DK, to be fair, right? So, so, so sure, it is the case that perhaps, you know, some of this, some of the conclusions from that question might be aimed at government. Some might be about perception. Some might be about stuff that really is in the control of universities. But one thing that is consistent over the years, and this came up in that piece of research that, you know, I was responsible for when the Office for Students was formed that Nicola Dandridge used to bang on about a lot on value for money. Contact hours matter. And it seems to me there's a tension, isn't there, between both cost pressures on the universities and a desire for students to be more independent learners but students who are saying particularly when they're dissatisfied I want more contact whether that was during the pandemic online contact with other humans or post-pandemic you know face-to-face contacts there's a dichotomy there particularly when a lot of students then don't turn up for that contact it is um, as you um, rightly point out there the uh, contact hours um, narrative which is something that's been going on for a fair old number of years has now um, kind of morphed into the online or not narrative. Now, uh, people like uh, contact, uh, uh, people like contact with other people. I don't entirely understand this as an introvert, but it's apparently a thing that people like talking to other people and that makes them feel good about themselves. Complete madness, I know. But um, some of this is in the control of the university. Some of this is not in the control of the university. It is very, very difficult. And I think we often forget this. It is kind of very, very difficult, especially as an introvert, to go away from home for the first time, to be dumped in a hole with a load of other people you don't know, most of whom appear to be spectacularly confident and have done at least one, if not 
two gap years. So are just like kind of different species, basically. And then think, okay, I need to make contact and get to know these people. I think um, the undergraduate experience, the first year undergraduate experience especially, is quite a lonely experience and it's quite an anxious experience and it puts a lot of pressure onto young people to feel like they're getting the social, uh, the social interaction that they need on just a basic fundamental level and to feel like they're getting the social interaction they feel like they should need based on the media impression of the first year of undergraduate tuition being the best year of your um, life and making friends for life and all that stuff. So there's a lot of pressure in at that point. And I think there is a lot universities can do in kind of bringing students together in the context of the course. And there's a lot students unions can do in, in terms of kind of bringing students together in other ways. But as um, research that um, Wonky has done and others have shown. This is very, very difficult to do. It is kind of very difficult to lower that anxiety. And I'm not really sure yeah. there's any yes. quick answers here in these recommendations. Yes, interesting. I mean, I mean, the good news is the the good news is that next week we've got a bit of a preview here. Next week at the launch of the research that we're doing with Pearson on belonging, uh, Sunday has got some really interesting conclusions from the diary entry work we've been doing, looking at students and belonging and so on. That suggests that there is some interesting stuff both that academics can do in the teaching and learning context, and also that other people can do in the kind of extracurricular context, rather than that kind of you know, you know that kind of you know, everyone pointing at everyone else saying someone else is responsible for that kind of, you know, loneliness and, 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 and so on thing. Marion, sorry, you were, you, you were, you were trying to come in. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on what uh, Digger was saying about uh, why the measure for LGBT students is uh, uh, potentially quite so different to the rest of the population. It is really important to note that for um, many LGBT plus students, uh, it, we are at a very pivotal age, assuming we are talking about sort of students coming uh, at, at around 18 years old. It's the first time you're uh, in an environment where you potentially can be yourself. Um, and having come out of two years in a pandemic where you have not been able to have a lot of, have a lot of interactions with other people, um, and uh, potentially the majority of your interactions have been online, this is where your people are, this is where your community is. Uh, coming into an environment as a, an LGBT plus student, like a university, University uh, can be quite a shock, especially if you have certain expectations uh, of what you're going to find there. And we did start off this year very cautiously. Uh, so when the survey was done, we were sort of out of the woods, more or less, in England at least. Um, but when we started the year, universities were still very, very cautious. Um, so uh, there weren't many big events. There weren't a lot of opportunities to actually socialize with other people. I'm not surprised uh, at these results and that the loneliness that's been expressed here. And I think uh, there are good reasons why this is higher for LGBT, LGBT plus students. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, though, I would say. We have, we, we, we have got a really interesting, um, another really interesting dichotomy here, haven't we? So if we take disabled students who are reporting, you know, significant levels of loneliness and also some other issues around mental health, on the one hand, post-pandemic 
teaching has become more accessible. People are able to not have to come onto campus anymore. That's generally regarded as a good thing. But on the other side, if we're not kind of forcing people onto campus, maybe they're kind of on their own, not really interacting with other humans. Maybe they're, you know, doing the teaching, you know, reading the stuff, submitting the assignments, but they're feeling incredibly lonely and haven't got that support network. We, we are really, it just feels to me, Amitay, like we're really stuck between, you know, two really strong arguments about dragging people back onto campus and allowing people to not have to come onto campus. Where do we, what do we do next? What do we do next? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really it's a really um it's a really important um aspect of this, and, and I'd, I'd make two points. The first is that this sort of post-pandemic era or, or phase um, should be seen as um, yes, we need to learn the lessons of the past, but we're not in the pandemic, so we can't just pick a solution from what we're doing in the pandemic. We can't just completely revert back to what we were doing before. We need to think again about the student experience in this post-pandemic world, having learned the lessons from the past. It seems like a really obvious point, but I don't think we're putting as much investment as we are in terms of thinking about it afresh as we would have done, you know, when we were forced to kind of go back into, um, you know, forced to go into lockdown. But I think this goes back to the second point, which is about, you know, making sure that we're really taking that student experience in a, in a holistic sense and looking at that student journey throughout the throughout the institution individually. When you look at you know extracurricular activities, or if you look at what's happening in the classroom, or if you look at what's um, you know uh, other things, uh, the, the the provision of certain services individually, we might think, okay, great, we've got a good model here. Um, you know, it may be that students are able to access it remotely. It may be that it's completely hybrid. It may be that we've gone back to face-to-face. But until you take a step back and look at the experience as a whole, you won't realise, for example, ah, actually, we've, we've got a model which individually all these bits work on their own, but it means that students don't really have to come to campus for, you know, three months and nobody gets to kind of see them or interact with them. That can't be the, the, the right way of doing things. So it's really important that we, we take a step back. Um, and, and I think what's really interesting is seeing those institutions which are starting to orient themselves in a way which takes that holistic view. But traditionally institutions have, have you know, have, have treated and, and engaged with students in those siloed ways. And I think we really need to kind of move on from that yeah it, 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 interesting stuff now, now now before we move on from this dk there's 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 one other i mean i, I you know I, I thought the findings on work so part-time work were really interesting here so there's something about who is accessing part-time work with their preparedness for the real world once they've accessed it and then differences by social background right there is yeah um so um Although uh, 50% of students agreed they were uh, sufficiently prepared by their degree for the world of um, work, um, it is slightly more, it's actually 60%, isn't it? So, uh, it's slightly more prevalent amongst students who have worked during their um, undergraduate uh, career. So what this appears to indicate is that actually working is a great way to get ready to do work. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why this is a new finding, but it's an important one because uh, there is a, um, if you think about the 
whole panoply of work-related skills as the government are currently doing and as you can um, read on lots of wonky, um, wonky articles I've written previously. The idea of the way work actually happens being a skill, like the way to understand, I mean, how to navigate your way around an office and um, hierarchy and being given tasks and teamwork and all that kind of stuff that that itself is something that employers tend to value in graduates a lot. But it's also possible that they also get this because graduates tend to be older than other people that are entering the workforce for the first time. And they've had more chance to to um, develop these skills while um, working. Um, So obviously students who do work tend to be from... um, more disadvantaged um, backgrounds. It does have a knock-on impact in the kind of social and um, networking aspects of higher education that often um, more advantaged students do get a lot of benefit from uh, because, you know, they get time to be involved in societies and clubs and students' unions and stuff like that. But um, it is, we've always assumed that part-time work is something that students have done, but we don't often think of it as a learning experience. And um, maybe it's time to actually offer credit for um, work done off campus. Wow, interesting stuff. And, um, you know, I wrote a very long blog about this kind of very subject about what universities might be able to do about uh, the quality and quantity of work, which uh, uh, is on the site somewhere. We'll put the links in the show notes. Now, uh, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. After 15 months, the Independent Review of Children's Social Care published its final report. In amongst the 278 pages of analysis and recommendations are some rather large recommendations for higher education. And this is in recognition that the statistics surrounding care experience people in higher education are simply not good enough. A really good example of that is that 1% of care experience people progress to a high tariff institution by their 19th birthday. That is simply unacceptable. In the recent round of access and participation plans, only a handful of high-tariff institutions committed to targets that improve the lives of care experienced people directly. The first recommendation from the review is that all institutions should become corporate parents. A corporate parent is essentially a legal duty for institutions to do everything in their power to improve the lives of care experienced people, and they should do that with the same vigour that any good parent would apply to their own child. This may sound like a radical recommendation, but it's actually already in place in Scotland where all higher education institutions are formally corporate parents by law. And University of Scotland recently published an update to show the tangible and life-changing results that that's produced for care experience people. The second and largest recommendation is that care experienced people should become a protected characteristic under the Equalities Act. One Example of how this would impact on the student experience is that a failure to offer or support again 365-day-a-year accommodation would become a breach of the Equalities Act as it would disproportionately impact on care leavers who have no vacation accommodation. 
And finally, the report recommends that a new CHIMA should be produced for higher education. This should be built on top of the work that's been done by um, the National Network for the Education of Care Leavers and the Buttle Trust that came before them. And it should t- take into account some really good research from the University of Sheffield, Pathways to University from Care. And this new kite mark should, as a minimum, have a named care leaver champion. It should facilitate early registration for care leavers. It should offer that 365-day-a-year accommodation. And it should offer bespoke bursary schemes for care leavers. Now, there are many opposing opinions on this review and certainly on various specific aspects of it. But these recommendations here are evidence-led and they have been shown to produce material benefits for care experienced people and other groups. And as a sector, we shouldn't be waiting to be told to implement these. We should be progressive and implementing them because they are the right thing to do. Now, next up in that survey, we learned some very interesting things about free speech. And there is a bill worming its way through Parliament on free speech, DK. So is there a link here? Uh, there's always a link, Jim. You know that. Uh, so the, let's look at the stuff in the Academic Experience Survey first of all. Because it's 2022, there's a question in here about freedom of speech. It asks whether you, a student feels comfortable expressing their viewpoint, even if their peers disagree with them. So 64% of students either agreed or agreed strongly. Uh, the rest did not express an opinion and 14% disagreed or disagreed strongly. Interestingly, they were also more likely to have considered um, dropping out of university and were more likely to be from um, advantaged backgrounds, shall we say. Now, I saw that's an interesting statistic. We're clearly going to hear a a lot of it on Monday when the free speech bill comes back from the comments. But I thought, you know, if you've got a stat like that for a given population, you want to compare that to the whole population. Is there something special going on with students, which means that they're more likely to feel like they can't speak their mind? And it turns out, no. I found a poll from Savanta Comrades back in 2021. It was... um, commissioned in the most 2021 way possible by Lawrence Fox's Reclaim Party. Remember all that? No, me neither. <laughs> uh, so we, we learned there that... Reclaim the right! Reclaim the right! UK residents... Oh, Jim, be quiet. We we heard, we so we, we um, learned from that survey that 38% of UK students believe that um, most people in the UK are afraid or very afraid to speak their minds. At work, 23% feel that on social media and 22% are afraid or very afraid to express themselves to their own family or close friends in a public setting. So about a fifth of the population, it is reckoned, are not able to sit in a pub with their mates and talk about the stuff they talk about in the pub with their mates without feeling that there's some kind of thought police checking up on what they say. Now, I would have... I would advise those people to go to university because there's obviously a much um, better chance for freedom of speech on a campus. Uh, I'm slightly glossing the fact this isn't exactly the same question being asked. We can't really draw equivalents, but it's hilarious, so we're going to do it. Um, so that really startled me. We, we 
kind of read all this stuff about, I mean, universities and Toby Young's words being left-wing madrasas and it being impossible for anybody to speak their mind at all because the woke police will descend on them with their woke sirens or whatever it is. And apparently not. It it kind of made me stop and think, really. I would say, while we're looking at the uh, amendments to the Free Speech Bill, there's a, there's a few in on, well, there's one on foreign funding um, and what that might be doing to kind of chill free speech. And there's one specifically, well, I mean, it's not quite specifically, but there's one that's basically about Confucius Institutes. And, you know, these are the, the, these are the harder edges of uh, some of the free speech debates, aren't they, when we're talking about the kind of so-called influence of kind of foreign powers? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it appears that this is now become some kind of uh you know everyone putting in whatever issues that they care about into this one incoherent um, you know um bill which is you know as happens um look i think there is um perhaps this is, this is the the more interesting actually aspect of 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 this debate in terms of you know some of the um concerns around reputation laundering particularly for, from from china and and the influence that, that has on on institutions there's definitely i think a, a debate to be to be had there um but i think taken as a whole one of the things that i find really striking about this whole debate is that um even if you take at face value <laughs> which is kind of hard sometimes, but if you take a face value, okay, there's a problem of free speech. It is totally unclear to me how any of the proposed um, levers, um, actions or proposals are <laughs> actually going to make a difference to the issue that there, that there appears to be. Because fundamentally, I think the issue is that, and this is not a new thing, historically, um, uh, universities have been... Um, fairly relatively progressive in comparison to uh, governments of all kinds um, and particularly governments which are sort of on on the center right now that for me feels like the issue <laughs> that actually the, the, they don't feel that those institutions represent um, their own views it there is nothing and partly because there's nothing they can really do about it so they're trying to attack um this particular aspect of, of, of a sort of an, a narrow small number of instances that get reported in the press and then are, are trying to kind of make a lot of noise about it but i i wonder whether this is more about the the headlines really than than anything practical because it's really difficult to see how how many of these um proposals that are being put in will be workable i mean it almost seems like they want every single student at all times to be listening to someone controversial um it doesn't really take into account the fact that the vast majority of students i would say don't go and listen to people speak they're too busy doing their assignments and enjoying doing sports and music and and, and other really interesting things right so unless they're going to tape students down and say here listen to toby young for five hours uh, every week like oh, yeah. <laughs> what is the end i think that's banned under the geneva convention actually well <laughs> I was going to say this might, might be a bit of a cheap shot but I mean it, the irony isn't lost on the fact that they are also the government are also cracking down on, on no, noisy prote- protests which seems a bit more of an infringement on freedom of speech than um, any of the <laughs> issues that they seem to 
have raised. Yes. Marion, there is, a, there is one piece of good news, isn't there, I think? Uh, I, I think this is good news. Um, the uh, original formation of the bill said that academic freedom for academics would protect uh, academic freedom within an academic's field of expertise, but they've, they've killed field of expertise. It, it, academic freedom is more generally protected in, in one government amendment. Sure, um, sure. Uh, not to mention how problematic trying to define what one's uh, actual field of expertise would be uh, compared to what they're actually saying. Um, I think that that um, is a positive move. Uh, I don't think we should be policing. I don't think we should be... (sighs) Policing may not be the word, Um, but I think... um, it definitely is a step in the right, in the right direction. I'll just leave it at that. Now, uh, next week, or at least, or this week, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, uh, we have an event on around belonging, and our colleague Sunday Blake is here to tell us more. Over the last year, Wonky and Pearson have been running a research project across all nations looking at belonging and inclusion at university. Back in February, we launched our interim findings, which was a survey of over 5,000 students looking at their perceptions of belonging and inclusion at university. On the 15th of June, we will be launching more findings looking at academics, professional service staff and student union staff's perceptions of students belonging and inclusion at university. This research has taken surveys of over 5,000 participants, as well as focus groups and diary entries of 45 students at participating institutions. At the event, we will have 11 uh, showcases of best practice from different universities across all nations, as well as a panel of experts who will be looking at our findings and talking about the implications for universities. So that event will be on the 15th of June. It's an online event and it's free to sign up for. It'll be from 9.30 until 1 and I hope to see you there. Now, next up, micro-credentials could act as a pathway to lifelong learning and higher education, according to a new report from ResPublica's Lifelong Education Commission. Marion, tell us more. Uh, so, yes, uh, the report suggests that uh, there is uh, a lot of potential demand for um, micro-credentials, um, not to be confused with uh, short courses or macro-credentials for that matter, but we'll talk a bit more about what they are, uh, and that uh, but there is no public awareness of them uh, and that uh, we should do more to fix that and also ensure that anything under 30 credits actually uh, is part of the um, LLE uh, when that comes in potentially. Yes, yeah, so uh, the report is looking at um, sort of credit bearing, uh, bite-sized learning, um, and um, according to the QA definition, this is um, anything that's subject to standard QA mechanisms and also uh, anything that isn't an award on its own right. Um, I think uh, there is already quite a lot of provision like this around universities, and what the report suggests is that there is, in the first instance, an audit to define what that is. Um, the, uh, there are uh, different ways in which it suggests that we can um, uh, sort of like promote and encourage uh, micro-credentials such as perhaps um, consortia of universities acknowledging each other's uh, credits or um, sort of like wrapper, a recognised wrapper around them leading to a particular qualification or a final course or a module. Um, Micro-credentials are not new. Um, 
there is, however, um, there isn't as much evidence to suggest that the appetite for them is there from a labor perspective. Um, so employers are not, they're, they're willing. I think about, it was about a quarter of employers saying that they would be willing to consider them if the right ones were available. Uh, but there doesn't currently seem to be enough understanding of what they are, how they could be utilized and, uh, sort of like what their value is. Um, uh, we do, as universities already, uh, provide, there are certain, um, certainly subjects allied to medicine, for example, um, would not be, uh, would be no changes to micro credentials. Um, but, uh, as, um, I believe, uh, wonky COVID, uh, they do tend to be, uh, aimed at people who already have a qualification. Uh, they're not aimed at getting people, um, who, uh, do not have a degree. To engage with higher education learning. They are, they are CPD effectively is what they are. Um, and uh, if we are to look at them, uh, from the perspective of encouraging people, uh, to, to learn, um, for, um, to like work purposes, um, with, uh, the aim of getting them more qualified in certain occupations, um, then that does seem to be a lot of work involved there to acknowledge their inherent value. DK, you've written about this this week. I- certainly have and you can read that on the site or in the link that's in the show notes um so this it struck me this week that we are 10 years after uh the year of the mooc um 2012 a year in which i spent a large portion of my of my time traveling the world and telling people that moocs were uh silly and i still stand by all of that obviously but um the thing that the MOOCs has become, these massively open online uh, courses, they're actually now basically short online micro-credentials. That's broadly what they've become. They are, you can get certificates of a greater or lesser value. There's some that are recognized by professional bodies. There are some that are just not recognized at all. It's just like a little thing from Future Learn you can print out, which is lovely if you want to put that on your wall, but you don't have to. Um, and quite a little, a lot of the ones that actually bear credit are actually uh, paid. They're low cost paid, but they're still paid and they end up um, being a qualification in their own right. Now, the problem with all this is that the audience for MOOCs has stayed the same. It's still, as Marion suggests, uh, people that already have qualifications, already have degrees that are already comfortably off, have got access to the time, the space, the equipment, needed to do these courses and even then a shocking majority i think it's something in the region of 90 odd percent don't even complete these courses that they've paid for and might lead to a qualification so um that seems like a warning written in the past that we could look at in the micro credentials um world that we do really need to do some serious work on making these accessible to people who could actually benefit from a short work-related course that could improve their skills, improve uh, their employment chances, and um, get them that next job or that pay rise or that enhanced responsibility that they really want to have. And obviously, I stand by anything that can um, do that. Um, 
I also thought in the article we're seeing a similarity with the stuff around uh, T levels. The big worry with T levels at the moment is nobody knows what they are. Employers don't know what they are. People who are deciding what course to take or helping people make that choice don't know what they are either. So we need to do some PR. We need to do some comms. And the recommendations in this report are the same. We need to do some comms. We need to do some PR. And you get to a stage, you think anything that we wanted to launch, it would work if only we did enough comms and PR. And I'm not sure that um, the world really works like that. And at the end, we need to do some really detailed stuff about demand from students, about awareness from students, and about students' life choices and personal goals. Amatay, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, it strikes me that, um, you know, universities both like and are used to getting people in for a long period of time where they have a longish relationship with them, where there's a set of um, kind of services and infrastructure that you're able to kind of share amongst a large number of people when they're engaging with you for a long period of time. It, 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 I, I have this sense, maybe I'm wrong, but I have this sense that once you start talking about um, kind of micro-credentials, you, you're in a space that it's just very, very difficult to get universities to kind of do well, to think through properly. You know, am I wrong? You know, is, 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 this, is this possible for the sector to move into as a space? So I, I, think, I think you've highlighted a couple of the, um, the challenges here. I think there's a sort of the technical aspect right so there's the can we deliver um or, or can we organize our courses in such a way that they can be delivered in short um bite-sized chunks that can you know potentially both work for the students who are there on a long-term basis and um can um also work for people who might come in just for uh, a module or, or just um for, for for one part of one part of the course that technically is possible but a lot of universities are not set up for that. So there's some universities are, are, are on the journey. Who they've, they've thought, okay, there's an opportunity here. There is also value um, for academics um, in in some level of standardization as well. It, there is advantages in terms of timetabling. There's advantages in terms of uh, clarity of students and, and seeing how all these different modules fit together and all the rest of it rather than, you know, complete, um, uh, you know, a completely divergent approaches across the institution. But I think to your second point, that, that is also, uh, to, to, the, to the point you made around um, the experience side of things, I think that's the bit that we've not really had a conversation about and cracked. Because in a sense, you do, even with a model like that, you will have your long time, long-term students who you you know, you engage with before they arrive, you have a whole induction and, you know, freshers week process and you build those longer um, relationships in terms of building that sense of belonging over time. You have the student support services in place. How does that work with somebody who's kind of dipping in and out? Uh, Does it matter? Um, Or actually, should we really, for those um, individuals who actually need um, a university experience in order for them to really improve their life chances, actually, should we be saying to them and to the government, give them the resources and the time and the support to actually take that longer experience? Because actually, that deeper experience is what we need there. Actually, for the micro-credentials and the shorter courses bit, that's for people potentially who have already done that university experience, don't necessarily need that, and actually can dip in and out, and and, and potentially that becomes more of a commercial offer. I don't know. I'm not too... 
I struggle to really see um, how for, for, for those people who are really, in, you know, haven't had those life chances, that kind of dipping in and out of an institution is that really going to work with, for them, particularly if they've not had experience of higher education institutions before? How do we have that wraparound support when actually they're coming in for a couple of months and then go, and going back? Are they actually going to succeed? Uh, and not to get into even the how you assess continuation rates and dropout rates and all the rest <laughs> of it when people are dipping in and out. So it, it is very, very complex. And I also don't think the policy incentives are really aligned for universities to do this just yet. It still favours that, that longer-term relationship with, um, with, with students. Well, super interesting stuff. And uh, uh, as DK says, there's a blog on the site about it this week. Do take a look. Uh, finally, then, this week, we saw HESA publish the 2021 Business and Community Interaction data. And DK, this is more interesting than it sounds. So HESA released the 2020 to 21 Business and Community Interaction uh, data, often called BCI data. This is notable because it's the first year of data we've got on this stuff that uh, covers the activities of universities during the pandemic. Now, I was looking at this, I was expecting to see some quite stark differences in the way that um, universities engaged with um, knowledge exchange and engage with what we'd like to call the uh, kind of civic mission. And I didn't quite see what I expected. So um, there are... Obviously, uh, there were some startups, especially at Cambridge, that saw like uh, notable financial successes, probably linked to the actual pandemic itself, in fact. But we got a, an absolutely massive number of university-associated startups last year. And uh, the biggest growth here was in those led by graduates. Um, so I'm not sure what was really going on with that. Is it because graduates are not able, were not able to access other jobs that they were starting their own businesses? Is it that we're just getting better at returning this data? Now it's in KEF and it's a thing. So that was quite surprising. I was also looking at, uh, the way in which, uh, people were doing outreach. I reckoned that there would be a lot of online lectures that a load more people would come to. And this was probably going to be good for, um, university community interaction. Uh, it does seem to have happened, but perhaps not to the amount that I expected. Again, Cambridge did really well here for some reason. Obviously, they had some series of lectures that were really popular. But I didn't see that in the data as much as I was expecting. So I was just wondering, especially from uh, two other guests that are more closely linked with all the different things universities do, um, what actually happened to uh, community and um, business um, interaction during this period and why can't we see all of that in the data? So I think it, it is really interesting. It is really interesting. Uh, I agree. I think it's uh, it's worth looking at what's going on there. Um, I think every university will have uh, done different things during the pandemic, and I don't know if you can draw a, a sort of like national image, uh, like nationwide image, um, because I think uh, a lot of universities did work very closely with the community um, to support the community and students during the pandemic. Um, a lot of uh, universities produced equipment um, to fight COVID. Um, they worked with local businesses to do that. 
Um, so I think um, a lot of them perhaps did not have the opportunities to, you know, run their usual conferences or lectures, or uh, but some will have moved them online. So I don't know if there is a straight up answer here. I think it would be interesting to see how everybody, and I mean, we know for a fact that not two universities de- dealt with the pandemic the same way, uh, because some universities ended up in the news for the wrong reasons, whilst others really didn't. Um, so I'm not sure that there was a common approach here. I think everybody was sort of finding their way through what they were doing in that year. Um, it, it would be, uh, I think, worthwhile to see uh, what universities learned and how that's going to change in the, the in you know this year's data, and see whether it, this is something that we're maintaining or whether this is something that again uh, we are sort of like popping back to normal, which according to the data isn't that much different. Yeah, so, um, I mean, just in terms of graduate startups, um, I mean, Kingston University, 298 new graduate startups during 2020-21. That's the best in the sector by some uh, margin, but I'm just not sure what kind of explanatory mechanism that there might be um, to say why some universities have been doing so well at getting these graduate startups off the ground um, during these incredibly bleak economic and um, civic uh times i was actually wondering amate if you had any thoughts on that i mean i'll I'll be completely completely honest that i don't think i necessarily have a a much clearer insight i suspect though that there will be specific local um schemes and initiatives in place um which just have have been been you take the kingston example have just been really um successful i think what's interesting is that you know, we around in this room, you know, have quite a collectively really strong knowledge of the higher education sector, but it's not front of mind what some of those schemes and initiatives are. And that's been my main concern about the civic engagement story, that actually it's one of the more, you know, you know, outside giving transformational experiences for students, that kind of civic um, engagement, the, the civic benefits um is a story that we've not really been able to tell nationally um policy makers um you know government i don't feel like they've got um at their fingertips those those real clear examples of of the great things that are going on in this space and i think we need to find more ways of telling that story um rather than you know see that just being pilloried by free speech and all, all the rest of it. Actually, this is the real story that we need to be telling about the value of, of institutions and society. It would be nice, wouldn't it? And I, I know that uh, KEF is supposed to be a mechanism for doing this. We did get the specification the other week for KEF 2, the return, um, and it was um, notable that a lot of the um, narrative stuff uh, that was submitted for the first KEF will just roll over for the next year. So we're not really kind of uh, capturing that qualitative information there. And of course, with the review of the BCI data, we're not really getting any information about this kind of activity uh, from the BCI collection. We used to get a whole load of stuff about uh a, um, university strategies in this area, which was completely useless, but at least had the potential to show us this kind of institutional decision making. 
I mean, Marion, where do we hear this stuff? Where do we look at this stuff at a national level if it's not going to be in the KEF and it's not um, going to be in BCI? Uh, well, that's an excellent question. I'm not sure we do. Um, I, I think it, it is one of the things that universities struggle with in terms of public image is that this work isn't as visible and it absolutely should be. Uh, and I think it is a shame because the pandemic was a very good example of where universities really came together to support communities. Mm. And we should be shouting a lot more about that, but unfortunately it has tr- been drowned out uh, by um, focus on uh, you know, a billion other things that did not shed as positive a light on uh, institutions, sadly. Um, so perhaps there is a need uh, for a different kind of measure altogether. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Marion, Amate, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. We'll be right back.